What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sat down with Jake Liu. He's a co-founder and CEO of Outer, a new direct-to-consumer outdoor furniture company who's turning consumers' backyards into showrooms. In this episode, we chat about everything from Jake's early days growing up in China, how he got into computers and electronics, immigrating to the U.S. in high school, his early career in various entrepreneurial ventures, what sparked the idea for Outer, and the valuable lessons he's learned throughout his journey. Here we go. Yeah. Um, so I was born in China uh, in a small town in the Zhejiang province, um, which is you know a little bit south of Shanghai. And uh, I grew up in a... Um, so, so my dad is an engineer, uh, electrical engineer, and my mom has always been an entrepreneur. And so, you know, any sort of business, uh, restaurants, boutiques, um, you know, you name it, she's, she's probably done it, uh, really entrepreneurial, but my dad is really scientific engineering driven. So basically as a very young age, um, at a very young age, I, I remember just creating electronic gadgets when I was like four or five years old. Um, he would just bring back schematics and he would fix, you know, TVs for our relatives and friends. And, you know, I would help him with the soldering iron and, you know, so I remember that as a very, very uh, young kid. And um, I uh, left my hometown, it's a very small place, um, to Shenzhen, which is, you know, um, one of the largest cities in China um, and the fastest growing city in human history, apparently. Um, most people know about it, you know, be, due to the all the hardware, um, you know, manufacturing and all of that from Shenzhen. So I basically went through uh, elementary school in Shenzhen. Um, and uh, in 2000 and Two, I think it was the year after 9-11, um, I uh, immigrated with my parents to the U.S. So basically um, going to a little town called Huntsville, Alabama, uh, because my dad's in wow. aerospace. Um, and so, you know, uh, so we immigrated there and uh, I pretty much grew up in the South uh, in, in, in Huntsville, uh, got a computer engineering degree and uh, thinking that I was going to work for NASA and... Um, because that's that's most of my 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 alums uh, go to uh, after graduating from the engineering school, and uh, but instead of doing that, you know, I had the opportunity to work at a video game company here in Santa Monica, uh, Riot Games. Um, that was my first job, and so Jake. Really before we get on. into your before we get into your experience, you know, here in the United States, I'm a lot more curious about you know, your time in China and what you remember and what that was like, you yeah. know, what sort of impact did that have? I mean, as an elementary school kid, you probably remember a lot of things. I mean, I remember a I lot know. of things from those years. Um, how, what was it like out there? You know, I, I've never been, I, I, I okay. really would love to go one day, especially like once all this mess is over, I would love to visit China, Japan, and a lot of places in the Middle East. I've been wanting to travel my whole life. Uh, but Tell me a little bit about it. Tell us a little bit about, about that time. Yeah, so I guess most of my memories, uh, uh, like you said, in elementary school in, in Shenzhen. Um, so Shenzhen, I think we moved there uh, in 1996. And for those of you who don't know Shenzhen, you know, it, even in 19, uh, like late 80s, it was like a fishing village. But in 1996, it had, you know, like 18-lane um, you know, uh, roads and skyscrapers and, you know, like a lot of European cars. I remember, you know, going there. I mean, 
from my small town to uh, you know hometown to Shenzhen, it was almost like from Huntsville to LA, right? Like the juxtaposition is 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 pretty big. Probably even more so. Huntsville is actually uh, quite a modern city, I would say. Um, so in Shenzhen, you know, it was an interesting time because it was again, it was like in the middle of the building up of the city, and so all the infrastructure, all the buildings going up is the tallest building in China at the time. Um, you know, my my dad worked at. Uh, Kind of like a resort. He is like head of engineering over there. So basically, built like all the, I guess, like IT system. You know, like electric systems for the entire. Like it's a huge hotel, um, and so you know, uh, it was fascinating because that resort actually it, because Shenzhen borders Hong Kong. There are a lot of celebrities from Hong Kong and you know from all over Asia that would just come to Shenzhen and stay at the resort, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was just like seeing that level of. Um, prosperity, you know, in Shenzhen at a time where China was actually po- pretty poor as a, as a country. Uh, it was on the rise, but it's definitely nowhere close to where it is today. Um, that was definitely eye-opening uh, for me. You mentioned that's where like a lot of the manufacturing is done, or I guess that was part of the reason of the growth. Is that where like Foxconn and all these companies are? Uh, is it? Yeah. You got it. Yeah. So Foxconn literally has like entire village uh, in Shenzhen and like all the workers just live in there. I think it's like hundreds of thousands of people. It's like a city within the city. It's crazy. I've never been there myself. I think Foxconn, uh, I left Shenzhen in 2002. I think they they started building like a few years after that. But yeah, Foxconn is definitely one of the largest uh, employees in Shenzhen, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but I know your your, your dad was very scientific and he was an engineer. And I know you eventually ended up doing that, you know, sort of too in, in school. But did you want, like, did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you were a kid, you know, in China? Did you have, like, this vision for, you know, what your life would look like? Or did were you not certain, like most kids? <laughs> uh, I guess, I, I think from a very young age, again, like, I, I just remember, like, all the, you know, electric, uh, electronics and, you know, soldering iron. And I remember having the Atari when I was a very young age. I mean, like, it's unheard of in China, right? Like, Having my first computer, first PC in 1996, while you know an internet in 1997, that's pretty. Um, I would say forward uh, in, in China specifically. So you know, I remember all my elementary school, uh, you know, classmates would come to my house because I have the computer and no one else has it. Right, like I'm the one kid out of the entire class that has a PC. It was like a 386, or whatever. Um, and so uh, from a very young age, I was influenced by that. Um, I think part of that is because of my dad's background, right? Um, he actually went to um, kind of like the MIT of China. It's called Zhejiang University. And so he he's a very talented engineer. And so from a very young age, I was influenced by that. So I guess I always wanted to be a scientist. I didn't know what that meant as a little kid, but I definitely really enjoyed the, you know, the science and the engineering and you know, be behind the, the the Atari, the computer, the toys that I, you know, so um, I guess from a very young age, I knew that I want to be an engineer. Trig, what was it like when your parents decided that, you know, they're coming to America, you're, you're moving from this country to that you've grown up in and gone to school and have friends in to an entirely new place that yeah. you don't know much about, you know, what, what was that like? Yeah, so... So my dad actually came to the States first. Um, and then it was two years of just me and my mom trying to get our visa. Uh, I remember going to the embassy in, in Shanghai uh, four or five times. It was, you know, rejection after rejection. And finally, we got it. And so there was a two-year time period where I thought it was a pipe dream, right? Like as a little kid growing up in China, 
obviously I watched, you know, Hollywood films because um, it's huge in China and anywhere in the world. Um, so I always had this vision of what America is, even as a little kid, right? And so uh, when we finally got the visa, and I remember flying from uh, China and then landed in Huntsville. Actually, I flew by. I think it was like Chicago here first, and then you know, and then and then transfer to Huntsville. Chicago, you know, was just from like landing and seeing the building and you know architecture. It, it looks close to the to the America in in my in my vision, right? And so, but when we landed in Huntsville, or actually before landing, I think it was at night. I remember distinctly remember. Um, it was like pitch black outside. There's no light, and I mean, it, Huntsville is a smaller city. I think it's like. 80,000, 90,000 people or something like that. But at night, it's just quite dark, right? It's like no one close in America kind of what I imagined it could be. And so I think that was quite the shock. And so, and then going to school in Huntsville, um, as I think I'm the only Chinese kid in class, one of the handful of few Asian kids in class, um, that was also quite the difference that I wasn't really expecting. Um, I remember having this little and this was before the smartphone era obviously 2002 right so like i had this little how old were you uh 13 12 or 13 yeah 13 um and uh, it was a uh, seventh grade um and uh and, and that's a, that's a that's a tough age in general and i can imagine for you you know coming from china to this sort of boring country not really knowing anybody or how things even work, like what the culture is like here and, and that kind of stuff. Was it difficult to even get acclimated and make friends and sort of feel like you fit into the system of whatever it was, the school system or just in general? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think the language barrier was definitely real. Um, but I think like 13 years, I was still at an age where I could, uh, you know, get used to a new environment relatively quickly i think that's much harder for like kids who are for example in high school right like 16 years old and you know more than that and language wise i remember um i i i uh, learned it from somewhere that like before 14 uh after 14 you can develop your your accent and it's really hard to get rid of your mother you know mother tone and accents and but before 14 you can still do that and so i think in the beginning besides the language you know i would just say Oh, and, and by the way, I, I, I learned English in, in Shenzhen because it borders Hong Kong. So like from first grade, I was learning English, but it's like British English. So I had like this really thick British accent in the middle of Alabama, right? As a Chinese kid. And so that was, that was quite, uh, I think, thinking back quite funny. Um, I was used terms and like pronounced them differently. Um, so I guess that was, you know, a little bit harder, I guess, for my classmates to get used to too, because they don't, you know, see a lot of people like me, I guess, coming from another country. Um, but no, I, I think the, the, the memory for that period was pretty, you know, fond. Um, overall, it was positive. Um, yeah, I just remember the language being the, the only thing that took me maybe like two years to get used to. Um, yeah. I, I can make an assumption that like, you know, me and Pat, we've had immigrant parents and, you know, or have immigrant parents and, um, you know, education is always a big part right? You got to go to school. You got to become a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer. You have to go to school. Uh, yeah. Was that the case for you? And, you know, is that something that you were okay with? And how did, how did your educational and academic career uh, come about? Yeah. I mean, I, my parents have, I think they are more liberal as far as, you know, parents go, especially as Chinese parents go. 
Um, right. Obviously, they want me to get a good education, um, and uh, you know, uh, studying is important. Um, but they didn't, you know, really say like, "Hey, you have to become an engineer or a doctor or lawyer, whatever." Like that—that that wasn't the case for me. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think I count my blessings for that because, um, you know, there wasn't kind of like a set path for me. Um, they they were more encouraging to you know to basically allow me to explore what I want to do. You know, like for example, I was a saxophonist uh, in middle school, and you know, my dad supported that you know right away, and uh, I even could have become a musician. I think you know, uh, and so you know, he they would probably be supportive as well. So I think I'm very fortunate to have parents like them. But um, to answer your question, I think you know. Uh, I knew what I wanted to become, right? Like engineer. And so uh, the first opportunity I had, uh, even in high school, I really, I mean, even middle school, I really like science class. And in high school, I started learning how to code and HTML and all that. And so in college, it was pretty obvious to me that I just got to get a degree in computer science or computer engineering. And so because of my childhood's experience with electronics, right, I picked computer engineering instead because I got to play with hardware. I got to play with, you know, like, circuit board designs and actually designing uh, robots and physical tangible goods uh, instead of just purely software. And so I eventually just picked computer engineering as my major. And um, when you were in college, was that, uh, I'm assuming, was that the mid-2000s? 2008. Yeah, that was my freshman year. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was kind of, I'm trying to like like picture what the world looked like in 2008 in terms of just like, you know, um, computers and technology and all this stuff. And that was kind of like right before the social media wave and internet was, you know, the e-commerce wave, e-commerce wave had come about, but it was like getting, you know, larger and larger. So uh, what did you have like an idea of like after college, what you would end up doing or where you would end up working um, and what you wanted to do? Yeah, that's a good question. So like I said, I went to uh, the University of Alabama in Huntsville and it's a very much an engineering college unlike the you know ua which is a football school right um we are all just like engineering nerds and um uh, everybody knew that you know upon graduation we would work for either nasa boeing lockheed martin or raytheon (laughs) you know it's like or there's a telecom uh actually locally uh called atran where i got my first uh real job i guess like as, as intern um so you know it was either one you know either one of those companies um i really wanted to work for nasa uh, because aerospace is just something that fascinates me uh, as a little kid. And so um, I even had like a little summer program where I, w- I would go to the Space and Rocket Center. I, I think a lot of people may, may know this uh, movie uh, Space Camp. It's actually filmed in, in Huntsville. Um, literally, it's a museum for, you know, uh, for aerospace. So it's where the Saturn V rocket is designed and you have like a replica of Saturn V actually by the, by the highway where I drive by every day when I go to college. So that's where I hoped uh, to, to, to work for, um, until I had this opportunity growing up, I was a huge gamer. Um, I think it's one of the mo- more like main motivations for, to get into computer engineering too. Cause I wanted to design video games, um, uh, as a, as a, you know, um, on my wish list of jobs. Um, but never and knew Jake, that. that was, just to like, yeah. Just to talk about that a little bit. How did you even know that that was a career that you could pursue? I mean, frankly, again, I'm speaking from experience. I didn't even know video game engineering was a career, right? And I might be the only one, but was that, I mean, I know now, I didn't know back then, but, you know, is that something that you were exposed to growing up? Did you know people that 
went on to design video games? Not necessarily as a profession. I knew that engineers in general, like software, you know, engineers are needed uh, in video game companies. I didn't. I obviously didn't pursue it like a video engineer, video game engineer kind of path. But I just knew that I needed to understand software. I needed to become a really good coder and programmer. Um, that's all I knew. Uh, but it was more of just, uh, you know, seeing companies like Valve, Blizzard, and, and then like Riot, right? Riot was actually, I think, in 2009, that's when I first heard about them, uh, when League of Legends uh, beta came out and all of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't know it, was, it could be a career, but I, I wanted to find my way there. Um, as a potential um, path. Did you did you have any inclination that or like desire perhaps to to be an entrepreneur to eventually like start your own business or was that something that came more later in your life? Um yeah, again, my mom, you know, has always been an entrepreneur so like as far as I can remember, she's always running her own businesses. Um, you know, uh real estate, jewelry, boutique, anything. You know, she's she's just uh very entrepreneurial and so like that was I guess that's in my blood as well. You know, the one half is probably engineer and the other half is probably entrepreneur, entrepreneurial. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the earliest memory I can remember is probably in high school. Um, I would just buy and sell computer parts. I would build computers, again, video game, right? Um, and uh, and then the first business I had built in, in high school was an IT business. I would, um, uh, my mom at the time owned a restaurant. I would uh, install this security surveillance system for her. And um, it turns out that many other restaurants needed something similar, right? Oh, and it was because like it was around 2007. It was like the year after iPhone came out. Android was the first smartphone to hit the market. And so I actually programmed this Linux system that allows people to remotely monitor their um, their camera system. Um, I would just go to Costco and buy this like $400 set. You know, it's like a closed circuit camera system. I would hook it up to a Linux server in the in the kitchen and then set it up and then I stream it to like a web server and then you can use your Android phone to browse and see the video feed in, in real time. This is before Dropcam, right? And so now obviously it's like live streaming cameras, like IP cameras, so um, yeah. common, but back then it wasn't. So like I would sell that system for like $5,000. Um, it was a good markup and I would just go and install it and I'll hire like two people to go with me. And so that was actually my first like real business. I actually made quite a bit of cash, you know, as a high schooler and as, as a, as a college student as well. But that would be my first kind of like a uh, uh, business that I had built. You mentioned interning at uh, Riot Games. We actually had the founder Mark Merrill on the show. He's a good friend and we've had him on the show actually two times. One of the few guests that we've had on twice. Um, nice. And it's a phenomenal company. I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you know, as like a sort of first, second job out of college, you know, what kind of stuff were you exposed to there early on and um, what sort of came after that? Yeah. So I think, again, I first heard about League of Legends when I was in college. And I think I was working at the, uh, the college help desk at the time. Um, so helping teachers and students fix their computers, right? Um, but in between job, uh, you know, jobs, we would just play League of Legends in beta. And it was like nonstop, right? Like the, the, everyone in the room was playing that game. And so uh, when I f saw that they were hiring for intern uh, for summer, I knew I had to apply for it. But I didn't really have high hopes because like, you know, I'm sure they have a lot of great talent in L.A. And, you know, why would they hire a kid you know, from Huntsville, Alabama? But I tried anyway because I, I touted my Mandarin skill. So I, I spoke in, uh, Chinese and they were at the time working closely with Tencent uh, and, you know, basically we're about to launch in China. 
um, I think this was the end of 2011, or summer of 2011, when I actually uh, then got the the internship offer. And I think they only had like about 200 people at the time. Now they have thousands, right? Um, it was pretty early on. Um, so even though I was an intern, I got to work on multiple projects, obviously working closely with Tencent to help with coordination with the releasing in China, uh, QA, uh, did a lot of coordination, production stuff, working with artists and you name it. I mean, just like, I think Riot had a really good culture where the interns are not just there to sit around or make coffee, right? Like you actually had to do real jobs and you actually made a really big impact um, at the company. And I think that was a really good uh, thing to take away from, from because now even at, at Outer, when we hire interns, you know, we don't ask interns to do anything that I haven't done myself as a CEO, right? And so um, that was important. Another takeaway from Riot is that just the culture, I mean, it's amazing, you know, the kind of culture that they built at Riot. And that's something that I took to heart. You know, a lot of, um, for example, one thing that I, I that took took away, you know, for me that that's um, uh, part of Outer's culture today is that, you know, we're treating everybody not as family, but as a team. Uh, that's that's important um, because you can, you need to hold a, a, each other accountable. It doesn't mean that you don't love each other because like, because, you know, like family, family relationship is like unconditional love, but you don't really have a choice. But in a team setting, you know, in a sports team or even in like a war, right? Like you sometimes develop yeah. bonds that are even stronger. And so that was something that I took away with me as well. And so I love that because, you know, and we always talk about it too. It's like sometimes, you know, when you get too much into the whole family thing, it becomes very cult-like. And, you know, there's a lot of like just group think and people don't want to speak up and hold, right. like you said, hold each other accountable and, and, it, and, and it hurts more than it helps anything. Right. It's like, oh, just because you're part of the quote unquote family, like it's, you know, it's like you could do anything and it doesn't matter what it is. You'll always be part of the family. And it's like this like sort of uh, culty mentality that I don't think necessarily works well for effective companies. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, for a sports team, you know, you're in it to, for one reason, which is win the championship, right? And then you're losing and winning together as a team. And so I love that. Um, you know, so that's something that, that really instilled me in me uh, and just working a few months at Riot. It was amazing. It was amazing. Did you want to get a job at Riot after? Yeah, I, I mean, I, got, I did get, get an offer, um, thankfully. And I still have the offer letter today. And obviously, you guys know that, you know, the... Uh, at the time, I was offered some options too, and looking back, that was worth you know quite a bit of money. <laughs> um, but you know, I think when I graduated in 2012, it was either working at a riot or embarking something you know um, on my own. And another thing that I really uh, enjoyed while being in Santa Monica was getting to know the startup community. So all the startup founders and accelerators, incubators, and investors, I got to meet them and you know got to know some of them. Who were some of those players? Yeah, Who was one so, of those players? So at the time, um, 2012 was the interesting year because there were a lot of incubators and sellers popping up. Uh, a few of them remain today, but at the time, you know, I got to know I got to know the folks at Amplify, who is definitely still around today. Um, and then, uh, you know, at the time, it was Launchpad LA, Amplify, Mucker, Science, uh, Idea Lab. Um, or you. What were you doing, like going like hackathons or like networking events or how, how, like, was this something that you were just sort of putting yourself out there and meeting them or? Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah. So I was reading up uh, on Paul Graham's essays, Paul Graham's the founder of Y Combinator. And I just found that to be really fascinating, you know, like just learning more about the startup culture and how to start companies. And so when there's like a pitch event or there's like a hackathon, whatever, 
I would always go attend, not to pitch, just to like watch an entrepreneur. I still remember like Michael Dubin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, pitching on stage to like, you know, panel, panel of angel investors. Um, I wish I would have angel invested then, right? Um, so that that was a, a huge influence. And so, um, yeah, just to get to know and network, just to go to those events as much as possible. That's awesome. And, you know, the reason I ask is because there's a lot of people that listen. And, and you know, the story you're telling is not very, it's not much I mean, it's not too long ago, right? It was only eight years ago that you were doing that. And there's a lot of our listeners that are interested in the startup scene, that are interested in tech and just other things in general. I think the key takeaway there is get yourself immersed in that culture, right? If it's tech, you know, get to know who the angel investors are, get to know who the venture capitalists are, who the new companies are popping out, right? Like, just be a part of that, right? No one's saying you have an idea. Just be a part of it. Meet people. I'm guaranteeing you there's going to be somebody else just like you. Maybe you find your co-founder, right? So... It's a great lesson, obviously, that's paid dividends for you. And and obviously, like, you know, um, places like L.A. and San Francisco and New York and these sort of bigger hubs have larger communities and more resources. But, um, you know, you'll find small, even small niche communities in other areas as well. And if, if you if if uh, if you can't, then it's a good idea to maybe even start one yourself. And I'm sure there's like a lot of people these days, especially in 2020, that I mean, technology is everywhere. Every company is has to be a tech company to survive. Right. Um, so. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, you're good. So what did you do? You know, you turned down Riot, you know, you're living in Santa Monica or in Santa Monica in general, and uh, you clearly want to be an entrepreneur. Did you just immediately start a company after college? So I definitely have a confession, you know, at Riot, I did have an offer, but it was not the offer that I, I wanted. Um, you know, I wanted something that's more. Uh, so so what happened was that they offered me, I think it was like a QA job or something, right? Right out of college. By the time I already had a few years of engineering experience, I also had another offer from a telecommunications company as an engineer. And so to me, I was like, no, you know, you guys need to hire me as an engineer. You know, I'm not going to take a QA, you know, um, position. And so at the time, I remember the hiring manager who, you know, we, then we became friends uh, later. He told me that, you know, I had this toxic culture that's not acceptable at Riot because there's too much ego, right? I think as a kid coming out of, you know, school, I think I have, I've built my own business, right? I had an engineering job offer and like I had worked at Riot. And I, I thought I was a big deal, right? Like um, it was, um, I haven't really failed in my life yet. You know, I, I really had like this ego. Um, I think that was really important, you know, uh, so I, I turned it down because I didn't want to just be a, a QA, QA person. Um, thinking Do you back agree with him though, looking back? Looking back, I totally agree. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but, you know, at the time, I mean, but, but then again, looking back, if I had worked at Riot or any company for that matter, right, even the special places of Riot Games, I don't think I would have worked there for, you know, longer than I don't, maybe two years just because... I was I was restless, right? I, I wanted to create something. That's what re- I, I wanted to do. I I would be a really terrible employee anywhere. I feel um, so. Maybe it's all moot, right? Like uh, I, I I definitely would just start my own business one day anyway. So I think uh, I think at the time the hiring manager, I think the HR person, he told me like, "Have you considered that that maybe you're a little bit too entrepreneurial?" I didn't understand it at the time, you know, what that meant. And that just meant like I wasn't good at following orders. Um, so talk about yeah, that. I mean, and I'm curious because yeah. um, like I've, uh, we've, you know, a lot of folks who are entrepreneurial have been in that position before. And, and I, and, you know, I feel like there's like two different types of people. Like there are ones that 
sort of internalize it where it's like you just get frustrated, but you don't actually externalize it to the point where you, you know, you're risking your job or getting fired. But it's like this burning thing inside of you where you, you just sort of forces you on this path to eventually like leave and start something. And then there are those folks who actually externalize it and are very vocal and are always just sort of, you know, wreaking havoc like in the workplace. And, um, you know, and those people tend to get fired perhaps because they don't sort of follow the rules or aren't part of this quote unquote, like sort of team and culture. So mm -hmm. how would you describe yourself in those scenarios? I don't think I was disruptive. I think I built a really good relationship with everybody that I work with, um, you know, I enjoy building relationships and I, I'm just curious, you know, uh, in general. So like I am curious in humans <laughs> in general. So like I, I love meeting new people and I tend to get along with, in, you know, anybody pretty well. And so I don't think I'm the latter, you know, like I, I think I would have fit it in fine and I would, I, I believe I would have contributed really well. Um, but it was more, I, I, I think I was more entitled, um, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, like a college kid, um, I thought I deserved, you know, better pay and a, a better job title. I think they even gave me at one point like a junior producer title. I was like, no, I, let's drop the junior. I mean, like just thinking back, <laughs> it was so cringy, you know, like <laughs> this like 21 year old. What, 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 uh, what would you do now if somebody was you were hiring somebody and they did to you what you did to Riot? I see that. I see that all the time. I mean, you know, it's good to have ambition. Um I, you know, we at, even at, at Outer, you know, we, we definitely look for people who want to become, you know, entrepreneur because, you know, we are start, we're a startup. And so we want people who are scrappy, who are thinking outside the box and who have the drive and initiative. But I do think it's important to balance that with like humbleness, right? I think that was another core piece of culture that I took away from Riot is just how humble everyone is. Like, doesn't matter how accomplished you are. Some of the founding members of, of, of Riot, they're just the most humble people that you know. Um, you know, one of yeah. them actually later became one of my investors. Um, so I think that's also important to balance. Uh, but I do think that's kind of like rough around uh, edges for a lot of new college grads. So I don't necessarily take that as a, like a completely red flag, but I would try to kind of like cultivate that and maybe like right. navigate that a little bit. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I think it's important, like, you know, you said to sort of humble yourself in these scenarios, especially if you're like a new college student, but at the same time, you know, you know your worth and it, you know, it's right. good to set the expectation ahead of time. Like I am ambitious, like I want that job. Um, and even if it's not that first position, like how can we set our, myself up for that to, to get that position as soon as possible? Like, you know, are there certain performance metrics or certain things that I need to hit and like in six months, let's reevaluate. Like, you know, that's all stuff that you should communicate. Um, and for those who are listening who are in that position, I think it's important to, to show that you are ambitious, but at the same time, it's like, you know, um, to, to, to come out of college to get like a, a high level position. Sometimes it's not the easiest thing. Agreed. Um, I think, you know, what, what really, uh, left a huge impression on me is that, you know, Hey Jake, we so so basically, the hiring manager said, you know, we won't give you the the producer position that you're looking for. In fact, you know, we're not going to hire you at all. You know, if you just insist on that on this, um, and then they say you just need to fail more. You know, we'll talk. You know, in a few years. So that that was true. And so, so, what, I, so what did you do? Did you go on and fail more, or did you go on to find another job? What did you do? Plenty of failures, for sure. And so, you know, but at the time, I, I knew I wanted to start my own company, right? And so um, I moved out to uh, to LA because I did get a... Um, so at the same time, I was building an app on the side as well uh, for my mom's restaurant. It was for uh, 
taking customer reviews. Uh, it was when Yelp was just like, well, sorry. <laughs> I just completely knocked my computer off the desk. All right. Okay. Um, at the time, I was also building a, an app for my mom's uh, restaurant. Uh, at the time, it was Yelp was on the rise and uh, restaurateurs were kind of losing control over their reputation because, you know, the loudest customers win, right? Like it's all about serving the super customers. And so I was building an app to help her kind of get customer review and feedback and actually help her manage the Yelp reviews better. It was called Servly. And so she used the software. She loved it. She recommended it to other restaurateurs in, in, in around Huntsville and everybody loved it. And so I started seeing the value in that. And uh, we got invited by uh, launch, uh, actually by Amplify. So Jeff Solomon um, was the partner at the time. And uh, he... Yeah, um, Oh, you did? No kidding. Uh, that's cool. I'm going to look up the episode. I uh, love Jeff. And so he was the one that said, you know, hey, come out to LA, build this, you know, we'll fund you for a few months. And uh, let's see, you know, if you can build this into like a venture backable business. So I did, packed up everything into my little car and drove across the country a lot at the time with my uh, co-founder, uh, Joel, who I convinced to drop out of college <laughs> to to do this. I just told him, hey, it's just going to be three months. You know, if it doesn't work out, you can always go back and you know, resume your sophomore uh, CS degree. And um, I, I wrote him a $5,000 check as well. I said, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can just cash this. You know, like that's, you know, you, you just do this. Um, and that convinced him to drive out. It was me and him drove maybe like three days from Huntsville to to LA, found an apartment in Mar Vista and uh, went to Amplify. But at the same, same time, uh, I was also meeting up with the founder of Mucker, so Will, and then also um, someone introduced me to uh, Sam Teller over at Launchpad LA. Um, and eventually, we decided to join, despite you know Jeff's recruitment, and there was a reason for us to move out uh, move out to LA. We actually ended up decide, deciding to join uh, Launchpad because at the time they incubated a restaurant tech company called Chow Now. Uh, Chris Webb um, is the founder who convinced me that Launchpad is actually the right home for Servly, right? And so, a quick, you know, gave Jeff advisor shares just to, you know, thank him for, uh, you know, the impetus to drive out here. But then we joined Launchpad and quickly just uh, got to work. I mean, it was three months of just intensive work. You know, it's kind of like the YC style. You just got to show week over week growth. You got to talk to customers. I remember like talking to all the restaurants in Santa Monica door to door. Um, I can tell you that the best way to sell to a restaurateur is to walk through the back door, through the kitchen, because the front, you know, like the front desk person is going to turn you away. They're trained to do so, right? But if you go to the kitchen, the chef or the kitchen staff will let you know where the owner is. And so you can sell software, whatever you want to sell, you know, that way. Um, Good that tip. was important. Just walk into the kitchen. Walk through the kitchen. Talk, I mean, about, a back, talk about a back door strategy. <laughs> I love it. quite literally yes um and uh yeah i mean that's when you know launchpad thinking back it was super valuable i mean how else are you going to build a great network of you know founders and investors and allies and partners uh as a kid from a alabama i'm sorry start a podcast, start a podcast. Okay. Yeah, that's right. probably podcast was actually pretty getting popular too around 2012 I yeah remember. start a podcast call it the founder hour i mean just steal our <laughs> idea right that's how you either either join accelerator or start a podcast. Yeah, there you go. Nice. But so so talk to us, Jake. I mean, you join Launchpad LA. You know, your buddy drops out of college. You guys come to LA. Um, you know, how does it go? I know you ran it for a few years, but talk to us about you know the growth and the challenges and 
ultimately what happened with Servley. So I remember the first thing that Will Will Sue over at Mucker told told me was that, you know, hey, I really like you, but unless you're ready to sink ten years of your life into this, I would advise you uh, from uh, at you know like leaving the SMB small businesses uh, industry. It's so hard. So so Will actually came from. Um, uh, YP, the Yellow Pages, they basically sell to small business all the time. Ever since the like the the, the literal Yellow mm-hmm. Book, like the, the Yellow Pages book, um, yep. and uh, that definitely resonated through the entire journey of building that first company. It's one of the hardest things, even to this day. Like after building multiple businesses, I still think selling to small businesses is one of the hardest things uh, in the world. Uh, it's just so hard to scale, right? Like it's so hard to get their attention. It's, I still think it's uncracked. Um, not, I don't think anybody has solved for that. And so uh, it was a good experience to kind of like cut my teeth into, you know, basically build resiliency, uh, you know, to have grit in building a company and just facing a lot of failures and, you know, um, just getting turned down by restaurateurs and, you know, shop owners uh, all the time. Um, It was really difficult. And so, you know, the business had like marginal success. It got, it was SaaS business. So like we, we had maybe like, Built it to I don't know like half million dollar million dollar in run rate, um, and then uh, I had a founder of dispute uh, right after we closed around of funding from Crosscut Ventures, and some really prolific uh, angel investors in town like Brian Lee, Jason Nazar, you know uh, Nick Green, etc. You know, uh, we we had the who's who's of the angel investors um, thanks to you know what we learned from Launchpad and the connections that we built there. Two months after the money hit the bank, uh, my co- two co-founders uh, came to me and they wanted to fire me because they said, you know, hey, your job is done here. You raised the money and you can, you know, we don't see any value in, in you in, in the company anymore. We want to keep building the company with the money that you just raised. So that was definitely a huge shocker. Um, you know, it literally quite literally felt like somebody stabbed, stabbed me in the back, right? Because those are two of my most trusted people who left uh, Huntsville, they both went to the same school. They're both engineers. Um, another lesson, right? Like overlapping skill sets. Um, and it just didn't work out. And so it was a very dark moment. I mean, it was an impasse. Uh, they wanted to fire me. I wanted to s- stay on. My investors backed me, but they, the investors invested on a note, so they didn't really have any legal recourse. They wanted to take the company and run with it. Um, they had hired another BD person um who wanted to become a new ceo and so there was a lot of politics and dynamics at a very very small company it was like 11 people right i had to lay off everybody um pause all payroll uh froze my own payroll obviously just to try to figure out that entire mess um yeah i mean it was probably still to this day is probably the, the one of the toughest uh failures or like moments in my entrepreneur journey uh it was it was that that founder fallout um that dispute that i was going through was that something that you think could have been avoided at all? Like, or was that, were there other sort of factors at play that were just sort of out of your control? Definitely. I mean, I was just a very inexperienced CEO. Um, first of all, you know, in retrospect, um, we had split the company in, in, in three. It was equal ownership with the three co-founders. That was mistake number one. And literally, I just stepped up and said, hey, I'll be the CEO. I'll go and learn to fundraise and be the business guy even though we all coded, right? Like we all built the software. And so um, fundraising was very difficult because that was the first time, you know, for me to do it. And so like I would set a wrong expectation for my partners. I would say, hey, I'll get it done in two months or like a month, whatever, right? Um, 
ended up taking like six months. And so you can imagine after month two, I'm telling them, hey, it's going to get done like next week. Repeat that, you know, five, 10 times. They've lost trust in me, right? They, 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 they think that I don't have the, I'm not capable of, 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 of fundraising. And so, but obviously, you know, people know that it's, uh, well, now I know it's, it's a lot harder than that. It's not, you know, it's not just the way that you pitch. Sometimes it's about the market. Sometimes it's about the process, right? And so it's about the people that you talk to. And so I really didn't have that expectation or uh, knowledge to, to, to kind of handle that well. And so the way that I handled it, which is wrong, is to tell my, my co-founders and my team to, you know, just, it's going to get done soon. But I wouldn't tell them, you know, the difficulties and negativity that I'm going through. Because at the time, I thought I was, sh- I was shielding them from uh, the negativity from the fundraise so they can focus on the business. Because business was actually doing pretty well at the time, right? And so that was a mistake. Mistake number two is to not be very transparent to my partners. And uh, they actually took that as a, you know, are you trying to hide something from us? Why are you not communicating with us, right? So my rationale at the time was that as long as I get the money in the bank, everything else can be solved, right? Including cultural differences and like the team and all of that. I cannot be more wrong. I think most businesses fail because of uh, team fallout. Like people just give up on it or like the partnership fallout. Number two is then running out of money, right? So we could have just kept on like we were. We didn't have a lot of money. We had like $50,000, $100,000 total from Launchpad that lasted us like over a year, right? With the three people on the team. Um and I was assuming that as soon as I close my, my million dollar round, I can solve all the issues in the world, including this, you know, brewing tension between my partners. But what happened was that, you know, two months after the money hit the bank, it was just kind of hard to turn back. I mean, the, 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 the air was just very toxic and it was difficult. It was negative. You know, it was hard to remedy. I didn't know how to remedy it, you know, with my co-founders, even though we had the money, it wasn't something that the money can, can, can solve for. And so, um, yeah, so so knowing what I know now, I would have definitely you know had a better idea to how to manage expectations and communicate with my partners and share the you know the 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 stress and the negativity and all the no's from fundraising and just to because that's that, that that's what matters in a partnership, right? The partners need to feel that they're respected and trusted, and so yeah, so I, it's. You know, from their perspective, they've never done it themselves. They don't know how hard it is to to fundraise. Um, they think it's like building a project um, where there's a definite scope and it's all up to your capability, whether you can code it or you can't, right? And then you have a deliverable. That's not how right. fundraising and, and works. Unless, and then, unless you've done it before, I mean, it is a, a, a brand new frontier for almost every entrepreneur who... Um, is you know going off on this endeavor, and it's something that you have to just sort of learn by doing. So um, there has to be that sort of tolerance there too. You know, it's like you, it's going to be hard to start off as you know if you're like an engineer, hire a really experienced CEO from day one who knows how to do all this stuff. I mean, you you almost have to do it yourself. So um, it sounds like what you're sort of saying is like you would have sort of maybe um, tried to find the right partners who complement your skills. Um, while in meanwhile learning how to go out there and be a CEO and, and raise money. Totally. And sympathy and empathy, right? Because they didn't really have that for me, right? They, because they thought, you know, it's easy to, to fundraise or it's a finite thing. Um, but they've never done it themselves, right? So I do think just stepping someone else's shoes and just try to understand from their perspective, it's not for the lack of trying or effort, right? It's it's really just it's it's difficult. It's not something that you can control. I mean, that that happens a lot in like sales and 
BD and positions like that where you re- you rely on not just your own skill, but a lot of timing and some luck and the other person on the other side, right? I think that's important to know, I think, for for any kind of business. Um, so, Jake, yeah, I mean, let's just go ahead. What what came after all this? I mean, obviously, it's a challenging time. You know, you've been working day and night to try to get this company up and running. And, uh, you know, obviously, you're dealing with all these, this, like, strife, right? Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, you're an entrepreneur at heart. I mean, you're always going to be hustling. You're always, you know, just hungry. But I could just tell that's the type of person you are. That's the type of, you know, environment that you want to be in. That's where you. That's where you do best. What did you do? I mean, did you just kind of sit on the couch and just fucking cry, and you know, just go, go down on yourself, or did you just pick right back up, or was it a combination of both? I mean, what was that time like? I might have done the couch thing maybe for a day or two. um yeah it was it was really difficult i think i was i fell into depression um you know for a bit um it was really hard to reconcile and it was an impasse right i had a lot of pressure from my investors not that they were you know being like pressuring me but i just felt this obligation to solve this because it was a problem that i you know, I, I'm the CEO. So, you know, like I'm responsible for, for, for accountable for all of this. And so what happened was actually, you know, again, I had to lay off everybody. Uh, it was impasse between the, the, the two other co-founders and me. Um, the investors, you know, trusted in my ability to turn the company around. You know, we, I was investing in the business too. I put all my savings to the company. So I basically gave them opportunity for the two co-founders to say, okay, convince all investors that you can actually, you know, run with the business and maybe i will just step aside and let you guys do it they wasn't able to, they weren't able to do it again they didn't have a lot of experience on the business side right and so the investors actually had trust in me so they basically said um you know hey if jake is willing to keep going with this business even if it's just down to him you know we will all leave the money in the bank and let him kind of you know build business but if it was you guys then you know uh we're out like give us the money back and so um you know, there's a lot of trust, you know, from from my investors uh, by saying that. Um, but I think the whole thing happened right before Thanksgiving in 2015. I think it was November 2015, and it took us six months to resolve it. And the resolution was that my two co-founders uh, left. You know, we bought them out, and the investors remained on board. I think short of like two investors that actually allowed them to, you know, we gave we gave them an opportunity to, to to back out. Right? Obviously, it was only two months after. They invested that this whole thing happened. Obviously, they had a right to take the money back. At least that's what I believed in. And so uh, most investors, including Crosscut, um, you know, Nick Green, uh, you know, all of these guys just remained a staunch supporter. Um, and they say, you know, hey, you, I'm, I believe you will find a way. So I was in my pajamas, remember? I was working from home all the time. I didn't have an office, but I was working hard. I was trying to say, like, okay, let me... I had to learn re- relearn the code base. I had to like take over all the customer relationships. Thankfully, I had all the relationships. Right, that that was that was my job, um, and just to kind of work from my own bedroom for a little bit. Like it took, I think, a few more months until I ran into a, a new advisor. Uh, Vince Thompson is his name. He's an LP in Crosscut. That's how we get got to meet each other. Um, and uh, yeah, he just joined me as kind of like a new co-founder, interim uh, business partner. And we would just hit the streets and just relaunch the product, and we, you know, pivoted a little bit. Um, and uh, and then I met my my new co-founder Robin at the time, who actually worked at Riot Games. Um, uh, that's how I, how we got to meet each other, but we didn't really keep in touch until I ran into him when he was working at Trinet Cloud, 
we were in the same building. I run into him all the time and say, Hey, what are you up to nowadays? And, you know, we got to know each other and he wanted to build a company and I, you know, he didn't know how to get started. I needed a CTO um, that to help me, you know, build the tech so I can focus on the business side. So I hired him on as consultant, you know, saying like, Hey, you know what, you can probably do a consulting for us, you know, be our interim CTO and I'll help you figure out how to launch your own product, uh, uh, your own company and startup that evolved into a co-foundership, right? So he joined me as a new co-founder at, at the company called ProspectWise now. We uh, renamed the company and pivoted it, um, which still serving the small business world um, and turned the company around. Thankfully, you know, do, thanks to Vince, thanks to Robin, thanks to the new team and all the investors, um, Brian, you know, Brian Garrett over Crosscut, they were just like super supportive during the entire time, Nick Green over the Thrive Market you know, helping me navigate, you know, this whole mess and turn the business around. And so today, Prosperware is profitable. It's growing. I'm still on the board. I'm no longer involved operationally. But it was a, um, I wouldn't say a happy ending because it's still going. Uh, but I think the investors are all at least going to get their money back, if not more. Um, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that that's what happened. So let's talk about Outer. You know, this now, like, you, you know, you're sort of, I think it was like around 2000, late 2017. Um, you start outer. How did the whole idea come about, and was it something that was sort of brewing in your head for a while, like as you were at Prospectwise, or, or um, did it sort of come, you know, serendipitously? Like, how did how did it all happen? It was serendipity, uh, serendipity for sure. Uh, by the summer of 2016, I was kind of burned out. I mean, having gone through all of that um, with Prospectwise, I was kind of burned out, um, and so um, again, thanks to uh, uh, my investor. Um, uh, Brian again, Brian Garrett. He said, you know, hey, you know what? Just try to figure out, you know, what do you want to do next? Like, I, I don't care, you know. Like, even if Postwise didn't exist today, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to it. Like, we'll probably just back you for your next company. Um, which is a lot to, you know, like that's they put in, you know, quite a bit of money into Postwise, and you know, he was actually, you know, uh, was able to say that to me. I actually just took a trip to China, um, just to take some time off from the business, and I, um. I have this cousin, his name's Jack. He, from very early on, he was telling me about this furniture business that he has, uh, a factory in Zhejiang, China. And he has been doing really well selling patio furniture to like pat- uh, like Home Depot and Pottery Barn, Costco, et cetera. Um, and he told me to come visit the factory. You know, I didn't really take that seriously. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just go take a look. You know, it's interesting. Um, yeah, but when I visited, I just kind of fell in love because... For the longest time, I was working in software. I didn't get to touch, see, uh, or feel my product. For the first time, I'm seeing all of these great, you know, beautiful furniture being made in person, and like the operation, like, you know, like uh, just something about the air in the factory that was really just energizing, and 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 it was really hot. Also, maybe that's part of the reason. Um, and the factory, um, but I really just, you know, it was kind of like love at first sight, and I was like, okay, how do I get involved here? You know, there must be an opportunity here. To his to his point. So I came back to to LA over a weekend. I rented a warehouse in the city of industry. I logged on to Flexport, created an account, figured out how to import from China. I, um, you know, I got on Shopify, <laughs> spun up a site. You know, using uh, Photoshop, I created a logo. So I created a business basically from the from scratch over the weekend and started importing containers and selling directly uh, on my Shopify site on all the same products you can get from Costco. Um, just cheaper, right? And uh, and then a week later, 
a buyer from Wayfair, which is obviously everybody knows, you know, Wayfair now, reached out and say like, can I buy list your product or your patio furniture products on our website? And I said, sure, like let's give it a try. That turned out to be, you know, a really great decision because that, you know, that business grew from zero to like over a million dollar in runway in like a matter of weeks. Um, it was so fast and there was so much money, you know, so quickly on um, just so little time that I was investing in it that I was convinced that there's a much larger opportunity in that space. And so that was the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. Um, that was also when Dollar Shave Club, uh, I think, just exited for a billion dollars. Um, DDC was on the rise, right? Like Albers, Casper, Warby Parker, uh, Away, all these companies are just blowing up. And I said, okay, well, the DDC business model is interesting. I think that applies really, really well in outdoor furniture. You know, it's a $9 billion market with no recognizable brands, with really shoddy products and terrible customer experience. Um, there must be a way to create fundamentally better products and a better experience for, you know, to, to, to uh, attract modern shoppers, right? Who are getting tired of the Home Depots. You know, what's crazy is you went from this guy who's, you know, a gamer wants to be in video games and design video games <laughs> to building a couple of SaaS products to then falling in love with furniture. I mean, how the hell does that happen? I mean, how do you so quickly, you know, you know, wire your brain to go from this engineer to a D to C furniture seller? Like, I mean, like, how does that work? I mean, you completely changed it up. Like you completely changed careers. I mean, I mean, what was that even like? I guess from the outsider point of view, it is a drastic, like, you know, uh, change of career. But in my mind, it, it all kind of connected because, um, one, I'm just attracted to uh, unsexy problems, if that's a way to say it. Like, if you think about, like, small businesses, like helping restaurants modernize, I mean, that's, you know, unsexy. It's really difficult. It's uh, not a lot of... Pretty sexy now if you're DoorDash and uh, Uber Eats and whatnot. But, yeah, I, I feel you. It's all about timing too. That's another another lesson, right? Um, uh, I remember working with DoorDash when they were first starting out. Uh, uh, they were one of our clients at ProspectWise. Um, so I think in my in my mind, it all makes sense. I mean, in furniture, is also another in, uh, industry where there's just no innovation, right? Like on the product side, on the experience side, it's all about design, right? Like it's all about what goes into the next season of Lookbook, but it doesn't go much beyond that. And so... You know, from the material, from the design, you know, the actual functionality, the material, the customer experience, the customer journey of how people shop for home goods, outdoor furniture, especially, you know, it's a very niche field in furniture, but there's no innovation that happened, you know, for, for I, I think, 40 years. And so that's what attracted me. And another thing I, I, I realized is that I really like to take advantage of all the resources that I, I do have, right? It's about like making do with what you have. And so in this case, I had the factory relationship. I knew I had a, you know, at least some advantage in starting something like this. And my previous business case, it's my mom's restaurant. So that's a perfect testing bed, right? So I like, so with those, those two components, I guess, you know, um, that was the common thread of like how I want to build my companies and how I, you know, what, what, what motivates me to, to, to do these things. And so from the outset, um, did you like set out to create a brand or did you want to create more so like a platform? What was... What was like the, the early vision? Yeah. So not to confuse the first business that was a Wayfair, you know, like a kind of like a, that wasn't really a brand. It was just a cash flow business. Actually still is, is it's operating today. It's just like uh, autopilot. It's just a really nice business. It's cash flow, uh, lifestyle business. Um, 
for outer, I knew I wanted to build a brand because I I, I researched the market. Um, there's no recognizable brand. It's level playing field with the bigger guys. Um, I think it's ultimately for the cons- consumer experience. It's important to have a brand that really focuses on just outdoor living, just outdoor furniture, not just the platform, not just the furniture brand that happens to have outdoor products, right? And but you have to work on everything else as well. I don't think um, that's a way to do it. So. From the very get-go, I knew I wanted to build a brand. Um, and uh, the whole thing solidified when I... Uh, so so basically, I didn't know how to build a brand, right? I was in the B2B enterprise world, and I was a computer engineer. And so like I didn't know anything about marketing or brand building or uh, furniture. <laughs> in, in this case, I don't know anything about furniture. Uh, and so I reached out to... Um, my, my initial thought was like, I need to reach out to the executives at the at Casper, at Dollar Shave Club, at all these DTC brands and just learn from them, maybe get them to advise me or invest me or whatever. So I reached out to pretty much all the executives at Casper at the time. And one of them was Terry Lin. He was the uh, VP of product management. He responded like a few minutes after I sent them a, sent him a LinkedIn message. Nobody replies to a LinkedIn message, but he did. Um, and he basically, I basically said, he, you know, Terry, I, I want to build the Casper for outdoor furniture. Um, I have a family factory, you know, we'll love to chat. Um, he responded and turns out he was the former head furniture designer at Pottery Barn. <laughs> and so I'm like, wow, this is like the perfect person. And then he also, you know, is IDEO trained, right? Like customer centric design is problem solving, not just about designing, you know, a beautiful products, but functional and customer centric. And so like, here it is, you know, here, here he is the perfect co-founder sitting right in front of me but i didn't know that you know i was able to get him on board you know to do this crazy thing with me um so i flew up to san francisco got to know him and turns out he also wants to you know he also see the same opportunity in outdoor and we also share a lot of same values like wanted to build a sustainable brand that's inspired by patagonia um you know so like using eco-friendly materials and all of that and so we just clicked uh, really quickly and then by the end of uh 2017 um, we decided to join forces to co-found um, Outer, um, and uh, on just an idea, and I guess you know the factory relationship and Terry, some of my previous co- uh, investors in in, in Prospectwise, you know, uh, invested uh, basically right away, and so that's how we got started. For, for for a business like this, like any sort of product business or startup, you know, you you a lot of companies reach a point very early on where you need to raise a bunch of money to yeah. go out and produce you know, the product actually. And so, cause if you have a, a lot of demand, then you want to obviously service that demand. And sure. it sounds like, you know, you had this family factory in China. I'm not yep. sure did they have like inventory sitting around, like how did that work? Cause you mentioned getting, you know, the whole Wayfair deal and getting to yeah. a million dollar run rate in a few weeks. Did, was that without any funding? And did you have to raise funding at some point? That's right. So for outer, um, I actually raised the money first and then started developing, but, but that's because I had the learning from that cash flow business. Because by starting the cash flow business, I remember the first ad that I ever put on was on Craigslist. I just posted a picture of the like a wicker sofa and just to test the market demand, right? So I didn't fund that. So it was all basically bootstrapped. And then I was able to bootstrap the business to millions of dollars in run rate. And so I knew there's a market for a product like this. And I knew what are the shortcomings on the product, right? People were complaining about how difficult it is to keep their furniture clean outside, how easy the things deteriorate, the fabric's just not comfortable. like. You name it, right? So I, I knew there's demand. I knew there's there were problems. I knew the experience was terrible. Um, and so 
that was kind of like my crash course of just learning about patio furniture and that market in general. So that's why you know, when I went to my investors for Outer, it was an idea, but it was a fleshed out idea. You know, I told them that I had a supply chain. I had uncovered all these market opportunities and problems. And uh, I had, you know, this partner with me who was willing to join me full time, right? If we can get this, uh, this, this round of funding. And so um, in a way, you know, we, we did a lot of customer development testing. Um, but the, the way that we started Outer was that we didn't want to just take anything that's available and uh, like off the factory floor and just like repackage it, spin up a, you know, like nice looking site and start like just burning money on, you know, Facebook and Instagram. That's how a lot of DTC brands were launched. Um, even in 2017, 2018, that's no longer a viable playbook in my opinion. So to me and Terry, I think uh, we, we both think it's important to truth, uh, truthfully redesign the product from the ground up, like literally down to every screw and like, what is the fabric? How's the construction? You know, how do we solve this? We call it the wet bottom syndrome, which is like when you are sitting down in the at a outdoor sofa, it's usually damp or wet. <laughs> Even in LA, like because in the morning there's morning dew and everything. How do you solve for that without using like a huge unsightly rain tarp or carrying the cushions in and out? Those are the problems that were you know reflected when I was building the previous uh, company on, on on Wayfair, and so we knew we had to solve all of those problems when it comes to the product before we even thought about building a brand or a website, it, it came down to the product first approach. Jake, you know, I want to play devil's advocate here for a second. Um, there's a lot of people that have a lot of ideas, right? I mean, we've had thousands of ideas. I know people that have thousands of ideas. There's a billions, trillions of ideas every day, but it takes, you know, just kind of executing it to make it happen. However, do you think, and this is where the devil's advocate part comes in, do you think that because you had relationships with investors, because you had done this before, that you had the trust that of investors to invest in anything you did, right? Whether it was outdoor furniture, whether it was underwear, whether it was, I don't know, garage doors, whatever it may be. And that somebody else, a random person with no experience comes in and says, I want to build an outdoor furniture brand. Would they have the same opportunity as you? And again, this isn't a knock on you for sure. What you did, it was fantastic. And building those relationships are great. And that's what people should focus on. But can anybody else do that? Just out of nowhere, out of scratch, decide I'm going to start an outdoor furniture brand, get money for it and get it going. Um, so I guess there are two answers to that. One is specifically to outdoor furniture. The barrier to entry is quite high. Uh, there are hundreds of furniture factories and studios in, in LA, none of them can actually create outdoor furniture. The reason is because the supply chain is completely different. For example, you can't use any organic materials in outdoor furniture. You can't use cotton, wood, things that are usually available for any furniture products. You have to use synthetic, so plastic, metal, etc. So the supply chain, the barrier to entry is relatively high compared to other products. Um, so that's, uh, it's you know, literally um, to answer that question. But the second answer is that um, you know, can anybody just, I definitely had the benefit of having known these, you know, investors and, you know, the resource of the, you know, the factory and all of that. But I don't think it would have been possible for me to build Outer as my first business if I hadn't failed before, right? Um, because through that failure, I was able to show my investors that what kind of person, or what kind of founder I am, you know, even though I didn't generate a huge return for my first investors, my first business, but they knew that I wouldn't give up and I wouldn't let just like, you know, I could have just left the business and just say, okay, I'll just go work at Google 
you know, or go to Riot or whatever, right? Like, um, they knew that I want to stick around and, you know, just to, on, on the premise of getting the, the money back. And so I think that was important to build a trust from that relationship. So I guess for, you know, any first-time founder, whether it's outdoor furniture or indoor furniture, whatever the product is or software, I think it's more important to just cultivate those relationships and just show, just to kind of develop uh, like a, your skill set as a founder. I think that's what I did at ProspectWise. You know, building the reputation, building the skill set, the um, all of those things that you just can't get um, anywhere else but to found a company. And so, I guess to that degree, anybody can start outdoor furniture, but anybody can start any kind of business. But I think the 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 primary motivation should be to um, to 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 learn to be a better founder, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the early traction, um, but I'm curious, you know, and I know like in this past six months to a year, you guys have had insane growth because of obviously COVID and people are more home and wanting to furnish their homes indoors and outdoors. I'm sure that's been a big reason for them, which we'll talk about, but I'm curious what the sort of growth was before, um, you know, all this happened and how has it been since? Yeah. So we had two options uh, when we launched Outer. One was to just you know, like go crazy with marketing and just to acquire customers and um, uh, try to build a brand that way. Um, but because of the type of the product that we're, we're, we're selling, so for example, we're in LA, right? So the furniture could uh, performs differently in an LA backyard versus a New York backyard versus Miami and Seattle because of the weather. It's outside. We don't have control over where people put the sofa. So we actually launched... Uh, in the end of spring last year, 2019, I think it was May, um, when we officially launched, we knew we didn't want to, you know, um, pour gas on the fire um, because we wanted to get true customer feedback. So I remember talking to many customers in the beginning, visiting them in person if I, if I could in LA um, and just get on the phone with them if I can, if they're elsewhere in the country. But I definitely wanted to get real customer feedback. And so that's what we focused on for the first seven months from May to, to December, uh, December of 2019. We really focused on getting the product right. I think what I was telling the, the, the team was that we need to shake the hands of like 100 customers before we even think about getting 1,000 or 10,000 people to buy our product. And so that's what we focused on. But it wasn't really focused on marketing in the sense that scaling it. It was more a lot of like experimentation and testing, like seeing different channels and different messaging and copy and content then what, what resonates and what can we do to acquire customers profitably that was really our impetus um so come january that's when we felt really comfortable because we knew that we had a really solid product we had close to 100 uh net promoter score which is super rare for any product let alone outdoor furniture something that people will always have a complaint on and so we knew we have the kind of like the perfect outdoor sofa was what we are promising our customers and it seems like we're delivering on that front so we're good on the on the product side which you know because of terry's experience and you know our, our manufacturing experience that i guess not is not a huge surprise looking back but we may, may want to make sure that's the case and so in january we we felt really comfortable in doubling down we, you know we, we hit product market fit and so we had this really great marketing growth plan that you know was starting to pan out in january in february and that's when COVID hit it was like in by the end of february and march so that was definitely luck right we were already stepping you know uh we were already pouring gas on the fire and now you have like i guess the oral drum of gas <laughs> you know pouring on the fire just to use that analogy but uh um that really made kind of like double down on our growth it's just the market in general was helping us um so it was the tailwind that doubled with our focus on growing 
that really propelled us uh, to this uh, level of growth. So we grew from uh, maybe it was like maybe like not even quite a million dollar in annual run rate to well over twenty twenty million dollars in annual run rate in a matter of months, and that was just super exciting. We talked about a little bit earlier um, that, like, you know, most companies, almost every company these days should sort of operate like a technology company because it's just everything is being techified, um, you know. And so, um, you know, it's interesting because I, th- I think I saw on the on the website that so you have the product and then I think you have this like showroom platform, right? Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about that and what you're doing there. Yeah, again, it's just a problem that we're trying to solve in the beginning. Just like the wet bottom syndrome for the sofa or the or the outdoor furniture itself, the physical product, the experience for shopping for outdoor furniture was also broken, right? Like if you shop for outdoor furniture today as an average, you know, consumer, you either go to Costco, right, Home Depot to look at what 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 we like to call disposable furniture, right? But you're in this like big box, you know, building that's indoor. Sometimes you don't even get to see the product. Or you're going to an online, you know, like destination like Wayfair, where there are a lot of options, but you don't ever get to see, touch, and feel, right? Or you're going to like a furniture store, a local furniture store, where it's like a close, claustrophobic environment. It's, you know, it's inside, fluorescent light lit, and you're faced with this pushy salesperson. And so, like, how are you going to get a good sense of whether the outdoor furniture is going to perform outside, you know, with, in any of those conditions? And so, our problem to solve for was like, how do we actually build these authentic? showrooms and the idea was just you know it was inspired by airbnb can we actually showcase our sofa in people's backyards are people crazy enough to do that even i still remember the first ad on facebook it was just like hey you know who's actually no we did it on next door first if you guys know like this uh, the neighborhood uh social media platform i was literally posting mm-hmm. a post like hey you know i'm starting this outdoor furniture company anybody interested in just like getting a free set of sofa just so you can like post our visits and i didn't think people would take to that and we got like 30 comments in like a matter of a night right like so i knew there was something and then that turned into a facebook ad that got 400 applications within like a a month of people just wanting to do this and so i was like okay all right people are crazy enough to do this we didn't have to give out free sofa we probably just give them like a discount and that still evolved into you know this neighborhood showroom platform today where we're currently in 100 and 20 locations, actually 140 locations in over 85 cities. And it's in backyards and rooftops and balconies. And uh, people really enjoy doing it. I mean, they do it because they get to new, meet like-minded people, their neighbors, strangers some, sometimes. They get to show off their beautiful backyard in a lot of cases, to be honest. Um, and they really just love the product. Uh, they, they love what we stand for as a company uh, you know, to, to basically you know, make outdoor living more enjoyable uh, and sustainable. And so we have this group of super customers, you know, we call them hosts, uh, who we have like a private network for to, to interact with and uh, to get product feedback on. It's great. It's a great community that we're building and we are on track to become uh, the largest crowdsourced showroom platform in America in the next 12 months by uh, activating a thousand showrooms across the country, not just in people's backyards, but in coffee shops and hotels and you name it, public spaces. So it's been super, super exciting for us. Jake, I need some outdoor furniture myself, so hopefully, you know, I can become a part of that group now that I have a balcony. I gotta, I gotta, and it's so hard to shop for this stuff, seriously. I mean, like, you know, you look for stuff, and I mean, first of all, you don't recognize any of the brands, so you don't really trust any brands. Uh, and secondly, you just don't know how it feels because you can't sit on it until it arrives. Uh, so, you know, I think what you're doing is awesome. You know, I'm curious, you're still a super young guy. I mean, this company is 
brand new, right? It's like a, it's as newborn as your baby is. Uh, it says as your baby is, um, where do you see this company going? I mean, you know, do you see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? You know, is this something that you're planning on building and selling to a bigger conglomerate that deals with furniture? I mean, talk to us a little bit about your plans. I know it may be premature to ask this question, but I'm curious. And of course, we'd love to follow up with you in the coming years, but you know, we just want to know where your head's at. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, so in, in my and Terry's minds, um, there's a very clear goal. There's a very clear milestone of creating the number one outdoor living brand in the world. Um, and uh, we, we think there is a huge untapped demand. It's a huge rising trend, even before COVID. But after COVID, it's, it's, it's doubly, triply so, right? Um, I think there's just a huge demand for, I mean, like, if you walk down Main Street in Santa Monica, all the restaurants, I mean, they're all only doing outdoor dining now, right? All the office spaces are touting their communal like outdoor spaces and everybody I, I read the report the other day that says um first of all millennials have become the largest home buying group in america and this report that says the average millennial home buyer is willing to give up a single bedroom to have a little bit of outdoor space so the market is there right the demand is there um i think we have the the pieces in place to create the best products to kind of fulfill that kind of lifestyle um and a company that that I look up to be, besides Patagonia, which is in its sustainability mission and its uh, and its like uh, eco friendliness mission, eco friendliness mission. Um, another company that I really like is uh, Lululemon, right? I think when Chip Wilson he built Lululemon in the, I think the 90, late nineties, I remember, remember correctly. Athleisure was his episode on our podcast as well. <laughs> you have yeah, a, you have a list of episodes. You interviewed all my favorite people. I gotta. Everything is connecting. All in all, everything is connecting. That's yeah, small world. That's that's awesome. I'm gonna definitely listen to that one. Um, so his and Jeff's, right? Yep. Uh, and Mark's actually <laughs> my former boss. Um, <laughs> Both of them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so yeah. So 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 when Chip Chip Wilson started Lululemon, I mean he he was selling a pair of expensive yoga pants right like people will call him crazy i'm sure like why would you even spend a hundred dollars on a pair of yoga pants while you can get something that's much cheaper right uh but what he saw i think it was just the rising trend of yoga and like the wellness movement and you know in general and so lululemon was able to kind of ride that wave right because it was a lifestyle change it was a paradigm shift in the world and consumer behavior and so i'm seeing the same thing we're seeing the same thing outdoor living you know like Outdoor living, outdoor furniture exists just like yoga pants did exist, I'm sure, back in that back when. And athleisure existed somehow in some shape or form. But there wasn't anybody that's taking on the banner and like creating a brand for that kind of lifestyle. Right. So I see the same opportunity here for outer to carry that banner and to create the first authentic brand for outdoor living. And I think that's a easily a billion dollar opportunity, if not more. Um, so I don't see ourselves selling to another furniture conglomerate. We don't even actually as weird as it sounds, we don't even see ourselves as like a furniture company because we'll never probably go into indoor, for example. We'll be creating some really fun products for the outside. It's all about how do you elevate your outdoor living, outdoor lifestyle, right? We will come out yeah. with hammocks and other fun yard games and stuff like that before we will even consider coming out with, with a, like a living room sofa, for example. Yeah. Um, you guys should create some like fun outdoor games. Like we don't have enough of those. Um, <laughs> we need it's them. interesting because like, <laughs> Talk about yeah, we talk about this whole like concept of just brand and and brand affinity and people just sort of being attached to brands and in in like the last like five to 
to seven years, we had seen like companies come out that were brandless and, and like, you know, they were just sort of platforms where, you know, there was just like brandless products that pe perhaps people could sell or the, the companies were selling themselves. But we're, we're seeing that shift back to like brand now because it's so important. And I'm sure, like, yeah. you know, you've seen it firsthand um, to, right. to create a strong brand, especially in like these unsexy industries that haven't been touched for like years and years. Um, so it's, so yeah, it's, in, it's incredible. And I think like, it's so important, um, you know, for, for people to, to feel like they are, connect with something, whether it's outdoor furniture, whether it's anything that's part of your daily life. It's, it's so important. Yeah. I like, I love the way that you put it. You know, people just like to connect. They, they feel like they're connecting to a brand and that goes beyond the brand, the product, right? It's a community. It's a lifestyle. It's a something that you're buying into. That's, that's much more than that. It's almost like a religion in some cases, uh, in a weird way. I think it's great that modern brands are popping up with, you know, very strong mission behind them. I think in the past, right, like in the kind of like our parents' generation, the baby boomer generation, the brand is all about like quality, right? Like then you know you're buying from a great brand because uh, you, you you like buying from a brand because you know they have great products that will last, that, that you know, whatever the case may be. But I think that the modern shopper who are looking for modern brands that have a clear mission, like what, why, why do they exist, right? Are they, are they, are they here to, you know, to support the, um, you know, environmental causes? Are they here to support, you know, um, uh, women rights? Is, are they here to support, you know, um, whatever the, the, the cost may be poverty, like, you know, like uh, lifting people out of poverty. Um, I think that's what's the, the hallmark of modern brands. And I, you know, um, that's what gets me really excited. It's just like the modern shoppers really do care about that. And they will put, you know, money behind those missions. And that's really exciting. Jake, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when I think about a product and company like, outer and you know i kind of alluded to it it's one of those things that you almost want to try out right you know it's it's hard to get a product and then return it i'm sure it happens often but unlike clothing it's a little bit of a bulkier item right and you know you gotta sit on it enjoy you, you, you want to see how it looks in your space do you see yourself and outer going more to almost this experiential retail model on top of the existing uh online business so that people when they're shopping, you know, once COVID is done and all that, all that stuff, that they can go in, test your product out, and then order it, right? Warby Parker model. They can test the glasses and they can order it, but they can't walk away with it. Is that, yeah. is that something that is in the works? So first disclaimer is that thankfully we have less than 0.2% return rate. So again, like to Terry's, you know, <laughs> magic, like we've created an amazing product um, that people love. Uh, um and so, but, but to answer your question, um, for this, uh, future of shopping, so to speak, um, we have a pretty, you know, strong point of view, which is we think retail has to change, right? We don't think physical retail is dead because we, we're still physical beings. I mean, we still have to see, touch and feel a lot of products before we buy, including furniture. And I'm sure a lot of other products too. And so, um, but do we all, do we want to drive a car to a mall and like, talk to a pushy salesperson. I, I think that's that that will change for sure. It's already changing. Um, I think for brands like us, you know, we definitely have like low-hanging fruit, which is targeting people online, right? Digital natives, people who feel comfortable buying, you know, look, uh, we have a very high average order value. It's $5,000. Um, you know, our product's not cheap. And, you know, to buy something like this, even 10 years ago on the internet is like unthought of, right? But now people buying Tesla online, you know, sight unseen. It's like a hundred hundred grand, right? And so it's definitely a trend, and I think it's a great trend. Um, 
because it's more efficient, right? And um, so, I mean, we, but the truth is, even after COVID, the online shopper penetration is only like about 17%. Uh, before COVID, I think it's like 11%. And after COVID, I think e-commerce is like 17 or 20%. I don't remember the latest numbers, but it's definitely accelerating really quickly. It's like five years of acceleration in e-commerce in like a matter of months, right? It's what China has gone through during the SARS era. And so um, uh, at some, even at 20%, even at 30% penetration rate for e-commerce, what about the, uh, the, uh, the other, the 70%, the 80% of physical you know, offline shoppers? So... The way that we're thinking about that is that's why we're building our neighborhood showrooms, right? That's why we have this goal of getting to a thousand locations across America, no matter if you're in LA or in Huntsville in a small town um, or Whitefish, Montana, wherever. You will have a physical presence by our brand and you will have this physical touch point that's really easily accessible for you. And so once we have that platform, I mean, you know, we're even thinking about, we have some brands that reach out to us and say, can we actually be part of your platform, right? When people go go experience outer, can they actually test Peloton? Can they actually try other products uh, when they're there? And so we're pretty excited about that. Um, that could be, you know, um, the next generation of retail. Love it. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be super exciting to see. I mean, like just overall, what's what's happening with retail, with with shopping, with um, just like the way people interact with these brands and these products. It's just like everything's changing, and and I'm. For one, I'm very excited about it because I think that we, like you said, needed this and it's just sort of accelerated that. And um, I think so many opportunities are going to pop out out of that as well. And so entrepreneurs who are listening, people who like want to, you know, create something, I think there's so many opportunities that are out there now and will come because of this. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, we're super grateful that, you know, you, uh, you came on the show and shared your story and what you guys are working on. It's, it's incredible. And uh, if you guys ever create um, outdoor furniture that's resistant to wind, please let me know because uh, where I live, I live on the outskirts of the valley here, and you know some of this outdoor furniture is in the pool or in the neighbor's yard. If if you don't uh, you know get ahead of it, so <laughs> keep me posted. It's uh, believe it or not, that's one of the most common uh, things that we get, and especially from our buyers in Miami and Florida where they have hurricane season, right? So it's also one of the things that we've solved for. So love to show you the product in person soon. Hell yeah, man. Well, thanks so much. This has been great. Awesome, Jake. Awesome. Thank you so much. And best of luck on your journey. I know, you know, during this COVID times, you guys have been killing it. But I know beyond that, that, you know, clearly you built a resiliency that a lot of other people and a lot of other founders haven't experienced yet, even if they were successful first time founders uh, or not. So I think that resiliency is key. I think it's something that is a huge lesson learned from uh, this episode is just, you know, take take life as it comes you know you never know what's going to happen whether it's your co-founder is trying to kick you out or whether it's a pandemic uh but you just have to find a way to rise regardless and i think you've done an excellent job at that and uh you know it's no surprise that outer has reached a level of success it has this quickly uh and we're excited to watch it you know uh and we're excited that you were on the show early on in you know outer's journey i appreciate it thank you very much <laughs>